This is the conclusion of a long narrative that began in Genesis chapter 37 with Joseph's dream that one day his father and his brothers would come and bow down before him. And uh, after many years, they have done exactly that. Uh, His father has now died. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a messenger to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Perhaps like some of you, I was brought up in a home where my family didn't go to church, although it was in the early 1950s, and those of you who are of that generation will remember it was still a generation when a decent upbringing involved sending your children to Sunday school whether you yourself went to church or not. I was an avid reader, and uh, we didn't have many books in our house. But one book we did have was my grandmother's Bible. Another thing we didn't have in our house was central heating. And uh, those of you who remember uh, cold, damp buildings in the early 1950s will remember how difficult it was to get out of bed in the morning. And so my tactic in order to satisfy my desire to read when my grandmother's Bible was almost the only book to read and to keep warm was to get my grandmother's Bible and then when my parents had vacated it to move into the central heated bed of my mum and dad. And there in the warmth that they had left behind I would try and find two particular stories in the Old Testament that I loved. One was the story of Daniel, which was difficult to find because it was at page 400 and something. And the other was the story of Joseph, but actually I also found difficult to find because unlike Daniel, there was no book in the Old Testament called the book of Joseph. And so I used to read this story that begins in Genesis 37 and continues right through to Genesis chapter 50. I'm not sure that I ever got as far as chapter 50. By that time, the bed was probably fairly cold and it was time for me to get up. But if I had, I would have discovered the secret to the whole story, the destiny that this 14-chapter narrative 
is eventually heading to. The secret that the author of the book of Genesis already knew before he started writing the story. That the whole story of Joseph's life, his parents, his brothers, and everything that takes place in his life is intended to teach us that God works everything together for the good of those who love him. Genesis 37 through Genesis 50 is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, in dramatic fashion. But it takes Joseph many years to learn this lesson. I probably don't need to rehearse the story. He turns up at breakfast one morning as a 17-year-old and announces that he has had a dream. He doesn't have the sense to keep the dream to himself. He blurts out that one day his parents and his brothers are all going to come and they will all bow down before him. He now has two problems. Problem number one, he was already his father's favorite son and his father had a special coat designed and tailored for him. Problem number two, as his father's favorite son, he has lacked the wisdom to keep his mouth shut about his grandiose and yet possibly God-given dream. And so he alienates them further. His father sends him to look for them on one occasion. They see him coming. They decide either that they will murder him or sell him. Eventually, they sell him to a group of passing Midianites who are on their way to Egypt. They sell him for the slave price. In Egypt, he ends up as a servant in the home of Potiphar, who is a significant civil servant. He rises to take charge of Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife has an eye for him and seeks to seduce him. He resists her. Uh, his uh, situation is this, that he has just, in the eyes of Potiphar, committed a capital crime and therefore deserves the death penalty. But it looks as though Potiphar's suspicion is that his wife is largely responsible. And so he is jailed in Potiphar's own house. He rises there to be in charge of the jail, two of the prisoners. They have dreams. Joseph interprets their dreams. One of them will die, the other will go back to his old job as the trusted cupbearer of Pharaoh. The dreams come true. And although the cupbearer has said his last words to Joseph, I will never ever forget you, in his own success, forgets him. And Joseph languages in prison until Pharaoh has dreams. And Pharaoh's nightmares remind the cupbearer of the prisoner who is able to interpret dreams. And so Joseph is washed and shaved and uh, brought into the court of Pharaoh, and there he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. There will be seven years of bountiful harvest followed by seven years of famine. Joseph outlines a program, uh, a famine relief program, 
that will be enormously successful. Pharaoh appoints Joseph prime minister of Egypt. The famine reaches beyond Egypt and into Canaan. The brothers come in order to get food. Joseph recognizes them. He has a scheme. As they are sent home, uh, the money that they have paid is in their sacks. They cannot go back, apparently having stolen the money, although they claim to be innocent. But the famine is so severe that their father sends them back again. And uh, the end of the story begins to come to its conclusion and climax. Joseph has kept one of the brothers back and insisted that only if the youngest and now favorite son, Benjamin, is brought down to Egypt will they be able to see his face again. The brothers return. Benjamin is allowed to go. Joseph breaks down in tears. The brothers are reunited. The father is brought back. And this story that begins with deep-seated family alienation ends with a a marvelous picture of family reconciliation, except that there is still a lingering fear in the father and in the brothers that Joseph has been harboring revenge. And so this word from his father Jacob himself, a twister, and now from his brothers that draws out from Joseph these marvelous words, I've learned to see things as God sees things. You meant evil to harm me, but God was doing something different. God meant this, he says in verse 20, for good, to bring it about that many people should be saved. Truly really a magnificent story. And it's a story here in Scripture, part of a much larger story in Scripture, that's designed to help believers understand the ways of God in their lives. These large narratives in Scripture that focus on individuals are meant to show us in large letters, in technicolor, what it is that God does in the lives of all of his children. Things happen that others mean for evil or in themselves actually are evil. But the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ works everything together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, I want us to see that this simple statement, you meant it for evil to harm me, God meant it for good, for the salvation of many, when put under the microscope, provides for us three very simple basic principles to govern our Christian lives, crafts lenses through which we should see clearly how we are to respond to every situation, every circumstance in our lives. The first of these principles is this. 
that God is always working in a variety of circumstances. And this is so evident in this passage, isn't it? Uh, These experiences uh, Joseph has at first to him are like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle spread on the table. They don't seem to fit together. Or perhaps like one of those questions that perennially appears on quiz programs, asking you to identify a place or a person, and you're, you're given a nose or an eye or an ear, and the picture isn't very clear, but eventually, as another part of the face is before you, uh, either slowly or quickly, you begin to recognize who this person is. And when I say that this story teaches us that God is always working together a variety of circumstances, we always need to remember that God's picture is bigger than our picture. Actually, the picture of Joseph's life belongs to a much bigger picture. Remember how in Genesis chapter 15, God had met with Abraham and said, now Abraham, part of my purpose is that in future generations, my people will be brought down into a strange land, and there they will suffer affliction. But my purpose in doing that is to bring about a marvelous act of redemption. And although Joseph himself could scarcely have understood all the implications of that, How could he have grasped that being sold as a slave and taken down into Egypt was a key element in God's far larger picture of bringing his people out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage, into a land flowing with milk and honey in the days of the Exodus? But God was working in that individual incident in his life, a far larger picture than Joseph could ever have imagined. And the other thing that's very striking about the way in which God works circumstances together in his life is that God's timing is so different from Joseph's. Fascinating when you meet Joseph at the age of 17, he expects God to act, if not immediately, certainly quickly. Foolish enough to tell parents and brothers that uh, he's had a dream that he believes is going to be fulfilled and they will all come and bow down before him. But God's timing is different from Joseph's timing. And it takes by my arithmetic another 22 years before Joseph sees his father and his brothers unwittingly bowing down before him. It takes Joseph to be in Egypt. It takes those long years for Joseph to wait until the time of plenty and the time of famine has come. It takes the famine to spread into the land of Canaan for the brothers to come down to Egypt and for God to apparently begin to fulfill the marvelous purpose of which he gave an intimation to Joseph 
when he was but 17 years old. 13 years of being basically a slave or a prisoner until at the age of 30 he is brought to the position of being prime minister. Another seven years of plenty and then some season of famine before eventually all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle of God's purpose intimated early in the dream have now been put in place. And God has been working together a variety of circumstances to bring about his gracious purposes. I think it was about 20 years ago when the picture first struck me talking to a, a young minister who had extraordinarily outstanding gifts, high aspirations, but who found himself in a kind of nowhere land and whose, whose soul was churned up with this mixture of longing to serve God and everything going wrong seeking to be obedient to follow Jesus and finding himself in the middle of a storm. And as he spoke, this, this picture, could hardly say it was a vision, but this picture appeared in my mind's eye behind him that uh, he, was, he was like a car that had been moved off the highway into a cul-de-sac. And it dawned on me as we spoke that the reason for this in God's economy was that the traffic had not moved on sufficiently for God to bring him to his place and his time for what has turned out to be extraordinary fruitfulness in the rest of his life and ministry. God working together a variety of circumstances for his glory. And it's a lesson that needs to be underlined in our own lives. We want God to do one thing, but God is never doing only one thing. And as we set our lives in the context of the multiplicity of God's working in our lives, we catch a sense that His purpose for us is far greater than we can ever imagine. But there's a second thing here. God is always working together a variety of circumstances, but God is also always working in a variety of individuals. I often think that Joseph must have felt what the psalmist says in Psalm 102, verse 10. Remember when he says, Lord, you lifted me up, and then you threw me down, like a child given a gift and uh, throwing the gift away and playing with the wrapper instead. And here was Joseph with these, these aspirations, these hopes that in some sense he was destined for greatness. And now all of that disintegrated, destroyed in his lives, his dreams shattered. And as he moves towards the end here, he begins to understand, looking back, that we are always wanting God 
to tell us what he is doing in our lives. But what God is doing in our lives may have very little to do with our lives and much to do with the lives of others. And you see that in many different ways, God working in a variety of circumstances, but also working in a variety of individuals. Here is his beloved father, born in a home where there was favoritism, encouraged to become deceptive, himself deceived, a man who we are told in Genesis wrestles with God and prevails, will not let go of the angel who appears to him at the Wadi Jabbok, will not let go until God blesses him, and God wonderfully blesses him. But that twistedness remains in his life. He repeats the error of his parents. He makes Joseph his favorite. And even when he loses his favorite, he then makes Benjamin his favorite. He struggles with the loss of his, his son, Joseph. And we're told earlier on in Genesis that his soul refuses to be comforted. It isn't that there's no word of comfort. It isn't that these brothers, with all their warts and all, don't seek to comfort their father. It is that he will not have comfort from God. His loss has become a sacrament of the, the ongoing twistedness of his relationship to his Lord. Believer though he is, changed man though he is, he's still wrestling with God's will in his life. And only slowly over these many years is Jacob subdued, till eventually, actually, he says, I'm willing now to give up everything, even my favorite son, Benjamin, whom his wife, incidentally, had wanted to call son of my sorrow, but he had the extraordinary courage as his wife was dying in childbirth to say, I will call him son of my right hand. And as he opens his hands to God and comes, as it were, and says, nothing in my hand I bring. God begins to fill his hands to further transform his life, to bring him restoration. And the same thing in, in the brothers. I wish there was time. I don't think even free church time gives this amount of time to see the way in which God works in the lives of these brothers who, who so hated, were so jealous of their younger brother. Do you remember when they come down with Benjamin and they're seated at the table? I don't know what the, the mathematical probability of this, but Joseph has them seated at the table exactly in the order of their birth. And the brothers look at each other. I don't, know what they, I don't know what Hebrew mathematics was like. Hebrews tend to be rather good at mathematics. don't know whether they were able to work out the extraordinary improbability of this happening by accident. 
and Joseph is seated apart, and Joseph has given orders as this lavish banquet is placed before the brothers. He's given orders when it comes to that youngest boy, put five times as much on his plate as on the plates of the others. You see what he's doing? He's testing them. Is the old jealousy still there? And God has begun to work that jealousy out of their hearts and their, their animosity against their father. When Joseph says he's going to keep Benjamin, the favorite son, uh, Judah comes, and in one of the most eloquent speeches in the Bible, he says, please, please take me instead. This is my father's favorite son. This will kill my father. It's an amazing transformation. Because you see, what God has been doing in Joseph's life, yes, it has had something to do with where Joseph is going eventually to be, but in a sense, chiefly what God is doing in his life has been deeply connected to the more profound work that God plans to do in the lives of his father Jacob and his brothers until they're brought to the place so beautifully in this narrative where they say we are guilty and we confess our sin. For years they had hidden it. For years, interestingly, they had never used the name Joseph. But now they use it. You know, it's true, isn't it, that uh, when we find ourselves faced with difficult providences, our question always is, why me, Lord? But the answer may not be you. Think of the martyr Stephen. Why me, Lord? Stephen, it's not really about you. It's about that young man who is holding the coats of those who are stoning you to death. Actually, it's, it's very evident in Paul's life and in Paul's writing in the Acts and in the letters that nothing made a more profound impact on him coming to Christ or the way he thought about belonging to Christ than the way he saw that death in Stephen, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, had led to life in him. And so you remember when he writes to the Philippians who are in danger of being discouraged because he's in prison there, their chief mouthpiece of the gospel. What do we do when our, when our, when our best apostle is silenced in prison? And he says, I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to understand, and these are his very words, that what has happened to me has really turned out for the advance of the gospel. And that's really what we see, isn't it, in, uh, in Joseph's life. So long as I seek to live the Christian life 
carrying the old assumption that God's chief end is my glory and my joy forever. I'll never grasp what God is doing. Actually, one of the differences you see between Jacob and Joseph in this long narrative is this, that in his affliction, Jacob was saying, God, what about my glory? And what sustained Joseph throughout these long years was this, how in these unbelievably dark circumstances can I both glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So God is working in a variety of circumstances. God is working in a variety of individuals. And God is also, isn't He, always working a variety of consequences. See that in Jacob, the way in which his life at the end is made whole. And we're told just earlier on that at the end of his life, he bows his head at the end of his bed and worships the Lord. And in the brothers, in the transformation of their lives from jealousy to grace, but especially in Joseph. Joseph, who at 17, and this is a great mystery, isn't it? Joseph, who had been given a gift that his character wasn't able to sustain. That's always been a puzzle to me. Why does God send extraordinary awakening in places where they have nobody to teach them? Why does God give unusual gifts to people who don't seem to have the character to sustain them? And you see God working in this young man with this great dream of extraordinary usefulness to make him the kind of man who will be extraordinarily useful in God's glorious purposes. When we meet him, he's proud, he's impatient, and he lacks wisdom. And so God humbles him. And in his suffering, he begins to teach him discernment and wisdom. And he gives him a long-term view that enables him, especially in the role to which he is called as prime minister of all Egypt, to have that enormous strength of character that will be able to sustain the world, the Near Eastern world, through those days of famine. Well, you know what he does. We wouldn't elect politicians who do what uh, Joseph did. He, he put up taxes 20%. He ended up producing a nation in which everything belonged to the monarchy. And he was able to sustain all that. And indeed, at the end of the day, this is the remarkable thing, at the end of the day, instead of the people saying off with their heads. The people come to him with gratitude, and they say, we are so appreciative of what you have done. We are willing to serve you all the days of our lives. It's an amazing phenomenon. But you see, it's what God had taken decades to produce in Joseph's 
life. And he did it largely, not through easy and pleasant circumstances, but through affliction and difficulty. John Flavo, 17th century minister, has a beautiful expression in which he says, afflictions to the Christian are like frosty weather on garments. They change the hue and whiten the sheet. Now, you need to be my age before that means anything to you. If you're under my age, you put everything into the washer and into the tumble dryer. But if you're my age, your mother got up in the morning when it was cold and frosty and bright and said, this is a great day for bleaching the sheets. And she scrubbed the sheets on her scrubbing board, and then she put them out on the washing line. And there the cold and the sun produced a a bright whiteness that nothing else could produce. And this is what Flavel is saying. This is what we see in the life of Joseph. God using afflictions to transform him for the sake of Jesus Christ. I said this story is actually part of a bigger story. It's part of that bigger story when God means to send his people down to Egypt and bring them up in the Exodus, but it's actually part of a much bigger story than that, isn't it? It wouldn't surprise me that when Paul says in Romans 8, 28, God works everything together for good for those who love him, that that word good is plucked straight out of Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, here's my question at the end of all this. It's okay for Joseph, 40 years after he's had the dream, to look back on his life now that he's prime minister, now that the family is reconciled, now that he's showing grace to his brother, it's all right when you're at the other side of it all to be able to say, God meant it for good. But how, when you're in the midst of it, are you able to say, God meant it for good? How was Paul able to say, God meant it for good? Of course, partly because he knew the story of Joseph. And it's a picture of how God works in our lives. But chiefly because of what he goes on to say. I think there are few greater confusions in the Christian life than to be convinced that God means to do good to us because we see good things happening to us. It's a very common thing, isn't it? How do you know God really loves you? How do you know God means to do good to you? Well, look at my life. Look at the blessings that my family are experiencing. Look at the good things that are happening to me. All things are well. Of course God loves me. Well, how can you be sure when all things are not well that God really loves you? And Paul's response to that is this. Perhaps the most important words he ever wrote for Christians in times of affliction. 
if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then we may conclude that with Christ he will graciously give us all things. You see, the logic, the logic is not simply God worked for good in the life of Joseph. The logic is if God didn't spare his own son, the Lord Jesus, but gave him up to the death of the cross for our salvation, we can deduce simply on the basis of good logic that if he didn't spare his son in his love for me, then he will stop at nothing to bring about his glorious purposes to do us good. wonder if you know that hymn of William Cowper, or perhaps you say Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He draws in some words of Psalm 77, where the psalmist speaks about God planting his footsteps in the sea. The problem with a God who plants his footsteps in the sea is that you can't see footsteps in the sea. His way is invisible. And I wonder if you remember how Cowper ends that hymn by speaking about God being his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. That hymn first appeared in the Olney hymn book, which John Newton and William Cowper composed together. And in the original Olney hymn book, there's a little note at the side of these words, God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. There's a reference. This is very unusual in hymns, incidentally. Very unusual in hymns. There's a little side reference. John 13, verse 7. Do you know what John 13, verse 7 is? It's Jesus saying to Simon Peter when he is shown in symbolic fashion by washing his feet, all that he means to do for him on the cross and in his life. And Peter says, essentially, I don't understand what you're doing. And Jesus says to him, you do not now understand, but afterwards you will understand. None of us, I imagine, is in the place of Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 at the end of the story. Some of us are in situations of struggle and darkness, intense difficulty, full of perplexity. We do not now understand, but we know that God is working in a variety of circumstances. We know that God must be working not only in our lives, but through our lives in a variety of individuals. And we know that he is working out a variety of consequences. And so we're content to rest in this, that if he did not spare his own son, that gave him up on the cross, then I know that with him he will 
graciously give me all things. And one day, whether in this world or infinitely in the world to come, I will be able to say, Father, you meant it for good. That's why we trust him. That's why we love him so much. That's why we know his timing is always better than ours. You trust him like that? As Jacob eventually did with absolutely everything. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of your grace. Thank you especially for the marvelous way in which you show us the wonder of your providence in the lives of your children. Our own lives seem so small by comparison with that of Joseph. Our own circumstances so much less clear to us. But we come to tell you that we trust you. And we entrust to you the whole of our lives. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to demonstrate your love for us. We pray that we may be persuaded by your great gift to us, that you will stop at nothing to bless us, to do good through us, and to bring us home. And this we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.